HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's central coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com. This week on Meat and 3, we dive into the science behind munchies, the history of coca, the therapeutic powers of psychedelics, and mushroom-infused recipes. One of the biggest questions we get asked a lot is, does heat degrade psilocybin? The coca leaf was used as a sacred plant. So as a plant that could communicate human beings with gods or mother nature. What you can start to appreciate here is that cannabis is activating and hijacking the system throughout the body. Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Kikotema, a food writer and director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear daishi ramen isakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I'll try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guests today are Shuso Imada, who is the general manager of the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center, and Sebastian Lemoan, who is co uh, host of the fantastic podcast Sake on Air. The Japanese Sake and Shochu Information Center and Sake on Air jointly organized uh, the fascinating online event, Sake Future Summit 2020, which was held on Saturday, November 21st and Sunday, November 22nd. Since the program ran in, uh, in Japanese Standard Time, many of us who have a massive time difference to Japan may have missed the event. So here they are, Shuso and Sebastian will share with us the takeaway points from the summit. The Japanese sake has a history of 2,000 years, and it is truly a precious soulful beverage. However, the consumption of Japanese sake has been steadily declining over the last decades. On the other hand, sake is becoming increasingly popular outside of Japan. So today we'll discuss what is happening in the Japanese sake industry and its future based on the takeaway points from the first ever global sake summit. We will also discuss the shochu industry, a traditional Japanese spirit that is as important as sake. 
Um, but before we start, Japan Needs is available on the Heritage Radio Network website as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify and subscribe to Japan Needs. Please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now let's start a conversation with Shusoi Mada and Sebastian Lemoyne. Hello, welcome to the show. Hello, hello Akiko, it's nice to be here. Hello Akiko, pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited. I'm a big fan of uh, Sake on Air, so I feel like I'm meeting you with my friends, but this is the first time to speak to you in person, so it's very yeah. exciting. Friends of Sake are all friends across the world. It's <laughs> well said, and, yes. And I should say Sake, Shochu and Awamori, because we shouldn't forget this too. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, and thank you for staying up so late. It's 12 a.m. over there in Japan. So thanks so much for that, too. Yeah. So um, so we're going to talk about uh, the Sake Summit. But uh, first of all, uh, could you tell us about your background? Yeah. Um, shall I start? Sure. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm Shuzo Imara. And well, my background, it's a long story, but uh, when I think about my path to the present situation here, but thinking back, I feel that I, I have always been gravitated by the charm of sake for, a, for the whole life, I think. Although I'm not any strong drinker, and nor were my father and grandfather. I was born and raised up as a son of a sake family. And my grandfather was a third son of Imada Shuzo Honten, which is a small sake brewery in Hiroshima, which uh, coincidentally is now became uh, quite famous because of the successor of the brewery, Niho Imada, was recently chosen by a British BBC as one of the most influential women of the year 2020. It's an honor of the whole Imada family now. And back to my uh, grandfather, as his elder brother has taken over the brewery, he came out to Tokyo about a uh, hundred years ago. Uh, to sell their sake in Tokyo and started a small liquor shop in the very center of Tokyo called Shinkawa and then became a wholesaler of sake later on and that's where I was born. Maybe many of the listeners are not familiar, too much familiar with the name Shinkawa. Shinkawa is the, is the, the name of the place in Tokyo and well known for the people in sake industry because Shinkawa had been a center of sake distribution in Tokyo since several hundred years. So there are many sake wholesalers, branches of major sake breweries around my house. So I've been grown up always surrounded by uh, the smell of sake. As I told you, I was not any strong sake drinker. And I, as a child, wasn't too much interested in sake. I'd rather had a negative image about sake at that time with a old drunken, you know, adults, people who were scary to me. <laughs> so I never thought about working in the industry myself. So I went to a university to study international law and dreaming about becoming a diplomat or working in an international organization such as the United Nations. So, But somehow, I, as I told you, I have been gravitated by the power of sake. Looking back at my life path, you know, uh, the people I met at a certain time of my life. And well, anyway, I ended up with uh, succeeding my family business and started working as a wholesaler. Uh, of sake in Tokyo, and I've been in the industry for more than 30 years now. And now I find myself drinking sake 365 days a year now. 
<laughs> and <I'm, laughs> the whole, whole time drinking sake, right? About four years ago, I was offered the position of the general manager of JSA Filmation Center of Japan Sake and Church Makers Association. And now here I am. That's my mm. miserable background. <laughs> wow. That was, uh, well, that's just the destiny, right? <laughs> it's not yeah, a miserable, it's that's the total it's kind of destiny, I would say. <laughs> Right. And, and you made the GSS Information Center a beautiful place. Well, I mean, it's not me. <laughs> well, I mean, you 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 still put life into it today. I mean, That's I was true. I was there That's earlier true. today where I met you, and you had uh -huh. the the new sake lineup for the season uh, yes. ready to be test, tested and and, and sold. <laughs> um, I mean, it's a place I really often go to just to. I mean, pick up documentation or do some tasting or and buy sake actually. So I can only recommend all visitors coming to Japan to um, try to go there. The on, only one small thing, Imada-san, it's not open long enough and it's not open on weekends. <laughs> yeah. Well, may, may, I, may I explain a little about JSS Information Center? Right. Yeah, we'll, we'll have some uh, yeah questions about JJS uh, okay. Center too. But yeah, it's interesting, right? And um, yeah, it's just the sake. Really, your background shows how um, Japanese sake industry is really, uh, you know, deeply rooted into family history as well as Japanese history. So yeah, you are almost representing the whole sake industry well, in person for, for, <laughs> for, for these thirty years. <laughs> right. Okay, um, so what about you, Sebastian? Well, I mean, I will not surprise you if I say I come from a very different background, but still I have one thing in common with, uh, with Shuzo is that um, until, let's say, 10 years ago, I had a limited interest in, uh, in sake, to tell the truth. So let's start from, uh, from the beginning. I mean, I was born and raised in France, which is a, a wine country, as everyone knows well. And my first visit to Japan was in 87. I was a business school student, student, and I was interested not in Japanese culture, but in Japanese management techniques and, and processes. Um, but just it happened. I, I fell in love with, with the Japanese culture. And since then, I've never stayed away very long from Japan. I lived in Japan in the late 80s, in the mid 90s. And I've been back a little bit more than 12 years now. Um, I had two professional lives, I should say. Uh, one was the life of a, of a banker. Um, I worked in financial markets for uh, about 23 years. And uh, that's until 2013 when I decided uh, I needed to change something in my life. And so I, I completely changed my, my working life. Um, and decided to embrace my my passion, which is uh, sharing the Japan that that I love. And it happens that in the Japan that I love, in between, um, I had discovered uh, sake nihonshu. Um, it's my, my. I mean, when when I lived in Japan in the nineties, uh, I had a similar image Ashuzo, about sake, so some something of an oyaji drink and not very interesting. I, I was more into pairing my my French wines with the beautiful Japanese gastronomy, which I was very fond of already. Uh, but uh, as I love travel. I love traveling through Japan. I 
had opportunities to meet, to visit some sake breweries and to meet the, the, the great people that, that brew sake today um, in, in the Japanese, various Japanese regions. And there is one particular encounter or event that basically changed the course of my life. I was invited to um, a tasting and sake introduction event by a brand that many people know well in, in, the, in the US. Um, actually, it's Tassai from the Maguchi Prefecture. And it was my really first time, the really first time I had an opportunity to hear and listen to uh, the story and, and do a comparative tasting about, um, of, of sake. And, and it, it, just, it just clicked. And, and from there on, I uh, started to, to, to study on, on my own. And then I ended up taking John Gardner's courses. And, and when, I, when I left my, my occupation, I launched a project around sh sharing uh, Japan's culture and its sake in particular. And that's how, quite naturally, I ended up being in touch with the other hosts of Sake on Air and, and Justin in particular. And I, I am, uh, have this great pleasure of, of hosting this um, podcast uh, together with doing other things around Sake, like a bit of consulting and education. Mm, wow. Um, yeah, it's really relevant because you know uh, you're from France, that you know the greatest wine, and that you really see sake and wine as equivalent uh, when it comes to something you really want to put in your mouth. That's very uh, honorable comments that you made about sake. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So um, for listeners who are not familiar with uh, your podcast, Sake on Air, um, what is Sake on Air? Okay, um... Yes, Sake on Air. Uh, we have started this podcast program about two years ago in 2018. And we have just uh, released our 15th episode, which happened to be our second anniversary episode. Mm. It's uh, the first podcast about Sake and Chochu. And it started with the idea of Justin Potts, who is the, the main producer of the show. And I believe uh, he was on your podcast a while ago. Yep. <laughs> I had John Gondner on episode 25 and Christopher Pellegrini on 132 and Justin okay. Bartz on 162. So, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, you are too, you too. Everything. You too. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can finally join you. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, at that time, I was running a non-profitable activity called Sake 2020 Project, which uh, main purpose is to prepare the infrastructure to enjoy sake for the Olympic year so that the people from outside of Japan can easily soak in the world of sake while they're in Japan. So as one event of the Sake Project, I mean Sake uh, 2020 Project, I was running a monthly English event called Sake Salon for the foreigners living in Japan uh, to have fun and relaxing time with sake brewers and his or her sake. And as our members of the project included all the influential sake people like John Gontner, Chris Hughes, Re Rebecca Wilson, Lai, Sebastian Loman, and Justin Potts. And at one of the events, I was talking with Justin by the counter, looking at the scenery of the event. He tweeted to me, say, while we have all the professional foreigners from all different countries like France, New Zealand, United Kingdom, and uh, America, we can make a good radio show. And he explained uh, then about his idea of doing a podcast show, 
But at that time in Japan, and maybe still now, there are very few people who is familiar with the podcast, including me. So I was very interested in this idea of doing an English radio show. But it's embarrassing to say this, but I had no idea about what the podcast was then. <laughs> So then Justin has started to send me uh, the materials to let me learn how much the possibilities podcast has in the near future and how influential podcast is in the U.S. And uh, finally, he succeeded. I, I came to think that it would be a good chance for the sake industry to use this media as the way to promote sake outside of Japan, especially in the U.S. And I thought that it should be from Japan that sake should deliver the newest information to the international market. And so mm. I managed to get some budget from the JSS to start the project. Right. And okay. as we are blessed with the knowledgeable and charming members around us in the cast, we could start a show quite smoothly so far, I think. Mm, right. Yeah. And uh, just to um, quickly mention, you know, the Japan, Japan Sake and Shochu Influential Center. So um, can you also explain what it is quickly? Okay, okay, okay quickly. JSS Influential Center. It's a uh, promotion facility run by JSS, uh, Japan Sake and Shochu Make Association. So it's a sake house as opposed to, say, Japan house in L.A. So... Um, it's a small place, but the only one facility which is specialized in sake and chuchu in Tokyo. So mm. the visitors can, you know, have information on sake and chuchu, including the information of the breweries and all the knowledge about sake and chuchu through all the pamphlets, booklets, and maps. And you can, you know, uh, we offer the tasting of about 100 items of all year round and we change the items every month and you can uh, taste everything from a very reasonable price like a dollar a cup mm. so many people taste several types of sake and enjoy comparing them to see how each one is different from others it's a very good experience to right. learn about sake i think Mm. So for listeners who are not familiar with um, sake, you can listen to Sake on Air and uh, try to get a chance to go to Japan. And then you can just taste uh, various different sake and shochu and awamori in Japan and sake and shochu information center. So Correct. these are two <laughs> <laughs> pillars of learning sake in Japan and yes. not outside Japan too. So um, as I briefly mentioned, the Japanese sake industry has been facing challenges for decades as Japanese people shifted their attention to other alcoholic beverages and also simply they're not drinking alcohol as much as before, which I think is the world trend. So what is the current status of Japanese sake industry in terms of the sake consumption trend and the number of sake breweries? Okay, um, well, the consumption the, of the alcohol beverage as a whole has seen its peak about 20 years ago and has gradually been decreasing since then due to the decrease of the, the population of Japan and the decline of the alcohol consumption per capita and the aging of the society. And sake consumption has, been, has seen its peak in 1973, which is about 47 years ago, and has been decreasing since then. And now the volume is about one third compared to its peak. Mm. And so, so uh, is the number of the breweries. The number of the breweries was over 5,000 about 50 years ago, but now it's about 1,400, 
which is also less than one third, just like the volume decrease. Right, I even heard that the operating breweries are even around only one thousand, which is scary. <laughs> How quickly? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Right. I would say about twelve hundred. <laughs> mm. But anyway, okay. yeah. Right. And then, well, on the other hand, the export of Japanese sake is really dramatically increasing. And uh, the U.S. is importing somewhere around 30% of the total exports. So yeah. there's a yeah. silver lining, too. Yeah, yeah. Right. I know America is the, the, the biggest exporting company for uh, country for uh, sake. Right. And, uh, well, the, there has been a significant growth in the overseas market. And export of sake has almost tripled in these uh, 10 years mm. and is still expected to grow in the future. So right. the, the, the in, for, for the industry, overseas market is, the I would say, the last frontier for the, the industry. So we have to put much, much effort to cultivate this new market, I think. And, and, and I would say that as many things in Japan, the fact that foreigners look at sake, enjoy sake, has a very positive impact on the way Japanese people look at their own drink. I mean, just sharing a personal experience, but to I'm actually teaching a sake course at the Temple University Japan campus, and most of my class is composed of Japanese nationals who come because they're very curious about... Um, what a foreigner thinks about Nihonshu and, and why he, he, he's so much into it. So that's a, a side effect, which I think would be very positive for the domestic market as well. Wow, that's very interesting. And I think Japanese people's tendency, right? Like we Japanese people don't understand, but, well, let's just look what other people are thinking <laughs> and, and it's true. confirmed and usually the trend takes off from that point not just sake but that's like a very Japanese mindset we we just don't say we are good <laughs> we just yeah, have literacy we're not, we're not really confident about myself right <laughs> right exactly <laughs> right so so why did you decide to organize a sake future summit 2020 Okay, well, it's uh, another long story, but uh, to make it long short, the main reason we organized the Sake Future Summit 2020 was to get together all the sake-related people who are working separately all over the world, especially at this time of the hardship, uh, to, to ferment our common understanding about where we should head for or what the, the, the direction should be and to encourage with each other as a comrades, in a way. And the idea of Sake Future Summit was also born from the conversation with Justin during the lockdown period in April, when we were so desperate to see there's nothing we can do except for, you know, staying home and be bored. And both, both me and Justin are like, you know, uh, like a shark or a migratory fish, which has to move constantly forward, otherwise die, maybe. So for us doing nothing during the period was like a torture. So and then in the meanwhile, there were people uh, started moving in their new stage, which is online. And we started to find some very interesting actions and online events being organized. And again, Justin was very fast. He kept sending me the online events, which he thought were interesting. 
and ones on which professionals from each field gather online and discuss about the future of food and the situation after COVID and etc. And he said, well, we should do that immediately. <laughs> and we mm. discussed about it. You know, we, we gathered as a member of uh, Sake on Air several times and did some discussion about it. And yeah, it took it took for a while, but we mm. finally made it. I, I'm so glad you did. So uh, we'll take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll dive into uh, what they discussed at the Sake Future Summit. So please stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. The Hearst family has raised cattle on California's central coast since 1865. Today, Hearst Ranch's signature product is their 100% grass-fed, completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst Ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hearst Ranch beef is available seasonally, May through August, in select Whole Food markets throughout California, and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. And now, HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hearst Ranch beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. Go to lardermeatco.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R meatco.com. Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Akiko Tema, and my guests today, um, guest today are Shusoi Mada, who is the general manager of the Japan Sake and Shoju Information Center, and Sebastian Demont, who is the host of Sake on Air, a fantastic podcast that features all about sake and shoju. So you had 13 sessions on November 21st and 15 segments uh, sessions on November 22nd during the summit. So 30 hours and uh, it's like a marathon around the clock. So it was very impressed. I was very impressed at how diverse the topics are, as well as uh, the speakers and the facilitators. So uh, we cannot cover them all, but uh, let's try what we can do. So I picked several topics to discuss here in advance. So please feel free to throw in any points from our sessions too. But first of all, um, what were the main points of the discussion on what it means to make sake? It sounds like uh, the discussion was focused on uh, the changing nature of sake. So is sake transforming in any way? Well, it's, uh, it's an, th- this topic is an interview of the, the legendary Toji, who is still actively working in the center of the industry. And from this interview, I wanted the, the, the viewers to feel the atmosphere this traditional legendary person carries and listens to his philosophy to brew and enjoy sake, because I believe his story is really worth called philosophy. Mm. Mm. Well, I, 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 heard, I heard of him for many years because he's always been a very famous 
among the brewers and sake connoisseurs as a person who is very strong philosophy about uh, his sake and when you drink his sake, it's obvious that he's something different from normal brewer. Well, his sake is、uh, very robust in a way and rich with a total opposite、uh, of the light, fresh, and fruity type of sake, which is, has been popular these several years. And his appearance is quite impressive too.、Uh, he's a very tall person with a solid body and, say,、uh, stubborn and that's a bit scary appearance. Some people call him Godzilla, <laughs> and he himself calls himself a Moai of an Easter island. <laughs> so he wears somewhat an you know,、uh, inacceptable atmosphere, and that helped make his image a legendary toji, I think, which in fact is a total misunderstanding. Real Ishikawa-san is a very intelligent and thoughtful person. And the brewery he was working then for a long time was、uh, located in Takehara City, which is a very familiar with me because、uh, some of my relative breweries are located in this area. And I felt him close to him.、Uh, I, I felt him very close to me because of that. And several years ago, right after I started working for JSS, I had a chance、uh, to talk with him. I thought it was a very good chance. I grabbed him and talked to him for a longer time, and, and I was very impressed. And I wanted to、uh, you know, show, the, show the viewers what I felt about him in that. And his philosophy is very deep and persuasive that I can listen to him for hours. But to make a、uh, long short, he never, well, one of his philosophy is that he never aimed to brew a certain type of sake. In the bottom of him, there is a respect for the nature. So he never tried to change what the nature wants the sake to be. And he says that、uh, his work is just to prepare the environment in which sake is fermented in healthy condition. So the quality of his sake is very, you know, differs every year depending on the quality of rice and the temperature and the other conditions of environment of the year. And he called That is what the vintage of sake means, you know, which is a little different from the wines. Vintage. That kind、right. of thing is very right. interesting. But it's really like,、um, I think almost every agricultural based、um, fine products now, including、uh, sake and wine, it's more of a, how we can、uh, prepare the environment and be a sustainable minded approach. Which I think is healthy. And、uh, yeah, it's like a bridges the perception about sake and wine and other beverages to how familiar sake can be because we, they operate in the same manner based on、mm -hmm. the same terroir、yeah. based mindset. True,、right? true. Yeah. So, but by the way, listeners, you, we can, you can see an、uh, actual uh, session uh, on YouTube. So we will tell you details later. But every single thing we're going to discuss, you can watch it later. So if you can pick up something you wanted to watch, you can see it、um, yourself. So, so next one is、uh, kind of related to the, this、uh, previous question. But the session recipe for the future of sake sounds interesting. So, Because it features new product development and experimentation that have flourished in recent years. So, what kind of new products are being developed and why? And what is the difference from the traditional sake? Okay.、Um, well, this, this was another very, very interesting and impressive session, I think. And it's not only you know, discussing about the, 
that the new quality of sake, it's, it's the comparison of a new and old traditional in a way. And this session was made by two breweries. One is、uh, Tadayoshi Onishi, who is the, the president, and the Toji of Kiyasho Shuso, which is, fa- which is famous for its brand Jikon from Mie Prefecture, which is very popular. Onisan is very Uh, is the res- representative of the popular top quality younger generation brewer of kind. And the other guest is Masataka Shirakashi, who is the president of Kenbishi Brewery, which is one of the oldest breweries of Japan with a history of more than 500 years. And Kenbishi is famous for its unchangeable and unsubstitutable only one type of sake. And the, and the moderator of the session is Hitoshi Utsunomiya,、uh, who is the director of JSS and a well known researcher as well as a highly respected sake technician. So we could really expect a high level conversation about the, the, about the prospect of the taste of, of these you know,、uh, contrasting two breweries.、Mm. And it was just interesting listening to their conversation, but there were some points which are very impressive to me. For example, the, the, the prospect, prospect or philosophy of Kenbishi for the future taste is not changing. And they do all the effort to keep the quality from several hundred years by changing the method of the brewing, for instance. So they, they you know, try not to change and do everything for the quality not to change. Okay? So they're. Continuous effort to keep more than, you know, another part of、uh, which was very interesting about Kenbishi is their continuous effort to keep more than, you know, 200 tons of sake to blend、uh, is really surprising and eye opening for me. I was very glad to hear that,、uh, that there exists in Japan a brewery which has、uh, kept, you know, you know, brushing up the, the blending skills. As a matter of course, and without showing it up. As these days, you know,、uh, there h a s been some、uh, foreign producers come to Japan to brew sake and try to do the to, to carry the assemblage technique to a sake brewing. And everybody was discussing about that, but it's really, you know, glad for me to know that. There is still、uh, a brewery who is trying their best to, to blend、uh, sake to keep their you know,、uh, sustainable products. Mm, interesting. Because, like, you know,、uh, for champagne, they blend、uh, different vintages to maintain that、uh, house taste, versus some winemakers really、uh, play with the vintage. Personality. So it's just a different approach. I, I didn't know that sake、uh, producers have the distinctive mindset what to preserve, what to leave it to nature, the、yeah. kind of thing. Well, well blending is a historical、uh, technique for Japanese sake, but you know, it's not, many people think it's not as important as the, the, the assemblage of champagne in sake case, but. You know, listening to Kenbishi's story, I, we really you know, see that they put importance on doing an assemblage, just like assemblage thing for a Kenbishi brewery.、Mm. That's a good, good history,、uh, right. which is worth 
you know, keeping in the future, for the future. Right. Okay, so well, speaking of uh, wine comparison, um, so sake is becoming increasingly popular outside of Japan, and there is a fascinating session called the Positioning Sake at the Top with uh, Javier Trizat, who is an amazing sake ambassador based in Paris and uh, is the chief sommelier of uh, Hotel Crillon in Paris, too. So that's amazing person, the top of the top wine person taking care of sake, too. That's fascinating. So what was the takeaway from the segment? Well, I mean, the, the starting point was... Um, overseas markets are a new frontier, but within the new frontier, there is another new frontier, the newest frontier, is to really position sake at the top as an alternative to um, wines, as you just explained. And uh, so we chose France as a destination because France is definitely not the only place where you have top-end restaurants and, and top-end sellers, but... Uh, you have quite a few. And uh, we invited these two um, very well-respected uh, sommelier, wine sommeliers who, who have trained in, in uh, the best restaurants of Paris and are now working for, uh, for a hotel or have their own place or even domain where they produce wine for, um, for, for Marco. And ask them, how, I mean, how do you get sake there? Does sake have some place there? How do you get there? And what are the practicalities of uh, managing a sake cellar at uh, Hotel de Crillon or at a top-end uh, restaurant? And uh, the, the, the beginning, uh, the starting point from, from these two gentlemen is not something that you will hear on the on the recording, but something that this that they explained uh, as we were discussing to prepare the, the, the session, they said, I mean, the, the problem is not France, is not French restaurants or French food, if you want to get sake uh, to the top. The problem is French people, is how do you, how do you convince uh, these um, stubborn consumers to, to, to drink uh, sake as a um, as an alternative to wine, and the answer was uh, through sommeliers, of course, and the the, the great importance of the sommelier uh, at a restaurant in a hotel to uh, share the story and create the emotions about a, a particular sake, about a particular story that is presented to to them, and because as a matter of fact. Um, you can design a, a, a fascinating sake pairing with a traditional uh, French uh, dining, French dinner, French uh, several dining courses. So that that is not the the issue. Um, in in a dining experience, top end dining experience, fifty percent is cuisine and fifty percent is service. So is how you incorporate sake into that uh, experience with, uh, with, with service, uh, beverage service. Um, the, the, there are still some, some, I would say, difficulties or practicalities to, to be aware of, and Xavier and Marco commented on that. Uh, the first practicality is um, there is another person that needs to be convinced. It's, it's the chef, um, because 
the sommelier and, and Xavier and Marco are, are doing that in their own uh, businesses, their, their responsibility is to propose uh, pairings to the chef and, and then they have to convince him that that's, that's the way to go, that's, that's the pairing that will um, enhance and, and present the chef's cuisine in a, in a, in, in, in a, in a, great, in a great way. Um, the other practicality is the management of the of the sake cellar. I mean, as most of our listeners or your listeners will know, uh, wine ages very well in a cellar, and it often improves with aging or, or maturation. In sake, it's a little bit more complicated. Uh, this is this is actually a, a rabbit hole we won't get into. Uh, I guess this time, but. Um, Sake is is changing, and um, this is not. I mean, a, a, a matured sake is not necessarily the experience that the sommelier wants wants to give. So he has to have a dedicated uh, space in his fridge to keep sake at lower temperatures than wines. That's point number one, and two. He has to order sake in very limited quantities because demand is, is picking up but remains relatively low, to be honest. Mm, right. Well, that's very interesting that the idea of 50% cuisine, 50% service uh, when you dine out, that's very French minded. Because <laughs> of I really like that because it's so important, right? And, like, you know, um, for, for example, someone like me who is easily convinced by hearing the background stories of producers, wine or sake, I'm easily sold. Like, oh, I'm going to try that. <laughs> so you need a story, like you said. And uh, I think, you know, chefs have to believe in that story. Uh, so as servers and, of course, sommeliers. So it sounds like you had a lot to uh, discuss in this session. Right, so... Yeah, so that's the, the listeners, that's the session's name is Positioning Sake at the Top. All right. So um, the sake, the next one is, uh, the sake is often discussed along with wine. So again, uh, even though the production process is quite different, sake and wine are discussed often uh, together. But for those who are not familiar with sake, a comparison with wine can help it understand it. So... Um, so the sake goes very well with non-Japanese food too. So I'm curious about the session sake over wine, uh, the Taiwanese cuisine experiment. So, what were the main points of the discussion? Um, this one was really, I mean, fascinating for for me. Um, we invited uh, two gentlemen. One was, I mean, one is Wolfgang. Angyal is the CEO of Riedel in Japan, and he's the man behind the development of Riedel sake glasses. I mean, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with Riedel, but it's one of the top-end wine glass makers. I should say glass makers now, because there are all types of, of glasses as well, including a Daiginjo glass and a Junmai glass for, for sake. Uh, and he's a true Epicurean. I mean, he's interested in in, in culture, but uh, he he judges wines and other beverages with his with his tongue and and nose, and that's the only thing he's really uh, 
interested in, uh, interested in, I mean, at the end of the day, when he has to make a technical judgment. And the other gentleman is Michael Ho. Michael is a, a Taiwanese or Taiwan-based chef and a great, I mean, a sake lover, a sake educator, a sake importer. And together, they try to answer a, a simple question. I mean, when you have uh, so many options available, uh, so many uh, attractive beverages, why would you uh, choose sake? And, and, and Wolfgang's answer was, when it tastes better. So let's, let's, let's try to, to, um, com- to, well, to, not to compare, but just to have a, 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 a friendly competition between um, a limited range of wine and uh, a, a few sake which are representative of a particular type or profile with Taiwanese cuisine. Um, so over whew, uh, four days, they tasted um, 60 different dishes paired with wine and, and sake. So that's in total over a thousand pairings that they did. <laughs> it um, sounds fun. <laughs> yeah, the two of them with a, with a small group of, um, of, of people that they had gathered uh, around them. There were seven in total. There were seven at the beginning, but uh, some of the group members actually did not make it to the second day. <laughs> <laughs> And and the 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 first I have to share the, the result. I don't want to to spoil um, or should I spoil the results or or uh, not? yeah, you I can. I guess I can. Right? you yeah. want to see the process. Well, well, I mean the 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 result was that with Taiwanese cuisine, which tends to be relatively um, sweet compared to other Chinese uh, Chinese fares, uh, wine only won nine of the 60 um, medals to take in the, in the competition. And the result was neutral for 15, and Sake really uh, took most of the medals with 35 uh, of them. And that was the first surprise for, for the team. Um, Wolfgang, in particular, expected wine and, and red wine to fare much better uh, against certain dishes of Taiwanese cuisine, but that was not the case. And, and from there, they tried to draw a, a few conclusions uh, about, or a few findings about what differentiates wine from uh, sake in its pairing to, to Taiwanese food. And so um, those who will uh, go to YouTube and 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 look at the recorded program will 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 find it there but it's about um the the necessity for wine to keep a, a very delicate balance between sweetness and acidity for example um or the necessity to uh, to keep to have very soft tannins and and low alcohol to be successful in its uh, pairing with Taiwanese cuisine, or to be successful or to be the best, uh, uh, the best um, option to pair with Taiwanese cuisine. Mm. Uh, as Interesting. Far as, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, well, because I, is this a great thing, right? With Chinese cuisine and sake, 
and or wine. It's just very like which way you're gonna take. But when it comes to wine, we tend to think of tannins and acidity and fruitiness, those kind of three things that comes first. But the sake is very forgiving because when you cannot decide what to drink, if you just offer sake, usually they don't fight against any kind of food. That's one thing. Um, yeah, and, and I think in Taiwanese cuisine, it's really umami-rich, but it's not like a Sichuan cuisine. It's not too spicy or, you know, something to pair with delicate sake. So it's another element. But the session sounds like it, it gives you a lot of questions, like food for thought to what to pair with. Uh, sake and food. Uh, absolutely. And, and actually, sake pairing is a, a topic that needs to be explored much more. There is little about sake pairing, uh, little literature about sake pairing. Actually, Shuzo has written a very long article about that uh, in Japanese, though. Mm. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, more, more needs to be more needs to be done. And, and, and about sake, as you just said, Akiko, the main finding was the, the role of umami and the importance of, of umami and, and, and structure in, um, to, to, to become a, a, a good match. Mm, okay, so listeners, again, this, the title of the session is Sake over Wine, the Taiwanese Cuisine Experiment. So uh, we're kind of running out of time, but I want to mention, I want to pick up one of those uh, shochu-themed uh, sessions. So shall we do, um, let's see, the craft of sweet potato shochu? All right, that's my turn. <laughs> well, show, show your session are all very interesting this time. And I was very much surprised to uh, see the reaction of the viewers for show your sessions this time. They're very enthusiastic reactions and very overwhelming, overwhelming uh, than sake in a way. And mm-hmm. this session is, uh, is an uh, introduction of imo shochu, which is a shochu made from uh, sweet potatoes. Right. Uh, so, so listeners, quickly uh, to remind you, so the so shochu is uh, distilled, so it's a spirit, not a brewed sake. It's a higher alcohol, relatively speaking, right? Okay, right. true. Okay. <laughs> okay, and the first, uh, no, first, first half of the show is, uh, is the movie taken, by, uh, taken at Yamato Zakura Shuzo and uh, Tekkan Wakamatsu, who is the owner and the brewmaster, uh, of the, the, the distillery, showed you around the, the process of emo shochu making while Maya Ali, who is the shochu expert, interviewing him. Uh, this distillery is a very, very small distillery and Tekkan-san do the process almost by himself. And thus his explanation is very precise and interesting. It was very well done movie and very, very informative as well as interesting. And the second half of the show is an interview of Stefan Lyman, Stephen Lyman, uh, who is a sh- uh, shochu specialist and a good friend of uh, the, the interviewer, Chris Pellegrini. Right. Uh, well, he came onto the show twice and we all know how <laughs> <laughs> obsessively <right>. great <laughs> knowledge of about shochu. That's true, Lyman. that's true. Right. And Stefan works for Tekkan-sans for several months every year for, for many years and knows very well about every tiny process uh, we have seen in the in the movie. So he explained about Imo Shuchu from foreigners' point of view. And this story was very interesting. And I'm sure that uh, you will be fond of Imo Shuchu or you 
feel your saliva dropping out of your mouth after you <laughs> listen to his story. <laughs> and you feel like, you know, drinking emoshochu immediately after listening to his story.、Mm, yeah. right. so, the, uh, so, the potato shochu is really the symbolic of shochu for many Japanese people. And、uh, yeah, the, the main one, the、uh, potato based shochu,、um, and also barley based shochu, and、mm-hmm. rice based shochu. But I think、uh, potato shochu is the highest、uh, production level. Yeah,、I、yeah. Believe, right? Well, barley shochu used to be the, 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 the first, but now it's imo shochu. I mean, sweet potato shochu is the, the, the first one. Right. The, the so, biggest part. Right. Okay, so the title of the session is The Craft of Sweet Potato Shochu.、Um, all right, and then、uh, let's see. So, so, what do you think is the future of sake and shochu based on what you learned from the summit? Okay, well,、um, well, it's often the case that in order to learn or understand、uh, or think over something, it's truly Eye opening to see the subject from a different, different point of view or a different aspect, I think. And this is truly what I felt after having an organized and also myself participating in this summit sessions. I thought that I knew it, I thought that I was sober enough to understand the situation, the industry.、Uh, but if you see sake industry only from inside of the industry in Japan, You often you know, lose track of or overlook or misunderstand the situation and become too subjective, I think. And this is a straight impression I had about the, the, the summit sessions. I was really surprised and impressed by the enthusiastic and positive opinion of people working outside of Japan, which sometimes opposed to、uh, what I had been thinking about. For example, there are several opinions about the authenticity of the quality of the type of the sake, saying that the sake should no way imitate、uh, wines and become like wines with its you know, malic acid, or citric acid kind of thing. And so the tendencies or demands we see in Japan among younger generations, brewers, or also the consumers for a new type of sake, which are more friendly with a modern food. Which are oily compared to the Japanese traditional food.、Uh, we should think about it over again. It may be needed、uh, in the domestic market for the moment to recover the lost several decades、uh, when we have lost big share of the market and substituted by bar,、uh, beers and cocktails. But when you think of an international market, what people say or expect for us is quite different. There are so many people who respect the traditional value of sake culture and its authenticity. And it's a matter of course that people in one country are not too much interested in wine style sake. So,、uh, interestingly, the idea of authenticity of sake resonates the mind of the very traditional Toji sessions, Ishikawa san session. He kept saying that there. There's always a good reason why the tradition has slipped through hundreds of years. And it's because tradition is very rational and there's nothing unnecessary, even in a little wooden tool, that kind of thing.、Mm, right. And yeah, it was very, you know, good. It will be a very good、uh, one new step forward for the industry, both 
both for sake and chochu. And chochu is still very domestic, and the international market is still very small. But I was truly surprised by the reaction of the, the listeners again for our shochu sessions. So many excited, enthusiastic reaction and comments for the sessions were really eye-opening and will make the, the producers very confident of their products, I think. So mm. we can see the future, but there's, it's nothing but the, the encouragement to see that there are so many comrades and friends all over the world. So I felt that we can change the world with them or we can fly to the moon. <laughs> right, right. So, uh, yeah, I uh, watched uh, some sessions and I was very impressed how energetic the presenters are and is passionate. And I feel like, oh, I really have to drink sake and shochu more often because they're so <laughs> sweet and passionate and lovely. And also very um, kind of uh, mission-based minded people. Like there is a mission for them. That's their mm. life. So yeah. it, I felt like I'm responsible to support this industry. So so listeners, um, so you can watch uh, all the YouTube videos. So where can they find uh, the videos? Well, uh, we archive all the videos on the, the YouTube channel of Sake on Air. So please check on the Sake on Air YouTube channel. Right. Right. So, okay. So you go to YouTube channel and just look for Sake on Air Summit. Yes. Oh, and, you, and you can start from uh, the sakeonair.com website, which will take you there, as well as to all the episodes, actually 51 episodes. She's not 50 now. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, 50 is the last one. Before, right? <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, the, the idea is we're trying to accommodate the... We're trying to, to give information to newcomers to the sake world as well as to those who have discovered sake already but want to understand it in more details. That's our challenge, is to keep a balance between these two. So I guess every of your listeners, each of your listeners should find something that he can learn from. Right. Great. All right, so listeners, uh, please go to... Uh www.sakeonair.com sakeonair.com and then you can look for YouTube videos of the summit and also, of course, Sake on Air uh, episodes which I almost listen to every single episode, by the way. That was really thank fun. Thank you. All right, thank so you. thank you so much for joining us today. and so late over there. Uh, so uh, Juso and Sebastian, hopefully uh, we'll have you again. Yes, yeah, sir. me too. Thank pleasure. you very much. It was nice right. talking to you. Thank Great, very thank nice. you. So listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japaneeds at theheritageradionetwork.org or akikokatema.com. Japan Needs is a weekly program and always available at heritageradionetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitcher and Spotify as a podcast. I engineer Zaman Wang and thank you for listening. I will see you next week. Japanese is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. 
connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.